Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, October 14th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. We're sponsored this week by Decode DC, the podcast that gives you an honest look into how politics affects your life. The host of Decode DC, Jimmy Williams, you got to hear this guy. He's worked in politics on both sides of the aisle. He's worked as a lobbyist. He knows his stuff. And he's taking all that experience and explaining how things really work inside and outside of Washington. Decode DC is smart, surprising, and it challenges the conventional wisdom, like in their recent episode about how corporations have found a backdoor way to lobby the public and the governments. Check it out. I did, and I think you'll like it. It's Decode DC, available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash minds. That's audible.com slash minds. There is no arguing that we have seen a massive increase in the diagnosing of children that have neural developmental disorders. Parents right now, especially in the U.S., report almost one in six children that have them, from ranging from developmental disabilities and learning disabilities like ADHD to things we more commonly refer to as autism. And there is a looming question as to why. And we've explored this question many times on this show, and there aren't many satisfactory answers. Uh, but a new group has suggested that one area that we need to target is environmental conditions that promote neurodevelopmental risk. This group called Project Tender is a collaboration of leading scientists, health professionals, and environmental advocates that have come together and said there are a number of chemicals commonly used in everything from furniture to uh, food plastics that need to be banned because there is emerging evidence that they can have developmental consequences on our children. Now, this is a controversial topic for a number of reasons, not least of which is that this group has specifically said that they're going to say that there are enough trends in the science that they're going to start advocating legislative change, even though the evidence isn't 100% yet. Well, I think it's less, quite a bit less than 100%. I mean, if you Google household toxins, you know, the, the majority of the top sites are from internet you know, organizations that I certainly don't trust, uh, especially in terms of how they represent science. And, you know, they, there's a lot of pseudoscience out there. And this seems to be an area that attracts people uh, who want to scaremonger when there isn't, the, the data aren't there. We have to agree that the word toxic, toxin, almost is meaningless now because of how widely used it is for a variety of different um, uh, meanings. So I think uh, let's toss that word aside for a second. Okay. Um, this group definitely has credibility in terms of the science, but they went a step beyond what I'm used to seeing from scientists because of certain trend lines across a really specific classification of, of compounds. And just for our listeners, they are organophosphate pesticides, uh, PBDE flame retardants. That's essentially flame retardants that are used in furniture. Uh, Combustion-related air pollutants like stuff that's used in in markers and other like propellant like you know spray paint kind of things lead mercury we're not going to argue about lead and mercury having developmental issues and finally pcbs which also we're not going to argue with 
but some of those top tier items, in, including um, some of these uh, components that are in plastics, uh, it's less conclusive, though we have some idea that families of compounds have resulted in certain uh, risks uh, in these kids. So it's an interesting conversation, one that I think is a little bit divisive because we've gone from just straight science to some advocacy here. Uh, but one well worth listening to. I, I totally agree. And if there really, if it really is a problem, obviously there should be legislation that that you know can protect us from it. Um, so I'm definitely curious to see what they have to say. Well, this week I interviewed from Project Tender Irva Hertz Pachoto, who's a professor of epidemiology and environmental and occupational health at UC Davis, and she's a director of the UC Davis Environmental Health Sciences Center and one of the co-founders of Project Tender. That is this alliance of scientists and physicians putting this together. So with that, we're going to take a short break and be back with my interview with Irva Hertz Pachoto. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. There you can find great books like The Big Picture by our recent guest Sean Carroll, which is a book about physics that made me cry. For a free audiobook with a 30-day trial, go to audible.com slash minds. That's audible.com slash minds. If you're looking for a dose of good karma, check out Crazy Good Turns, a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. Each episode tells a vivid, moving story about someone who stretched the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. This week's episode focuses on The Trevor Project, a national suicide hotline dedicated to empowering gay and questioning youth in their toughest moments. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or Stitcher. Irva Hertz Pichotto, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. Project Tender at its core is really a call to action against household harmful chemicals. And my first question is, why now? That's actually an interesting question. Um, I would say because the science in the last 10 to 15 years has become much clearer in terms of the impacts of environmental chemicals, specifically for neurodevelopmental disorders. And uh, you know, years ago, m most of the research on environmental chemicals actually was looking at cancer. Uh, then over time, People got very interested in air pollution and asthma and respiratory conditions became of interest in relation to the environment. And more recently, the focus on early life exposures uh, has highlighted impacts in early life and particularly on brain development in children. Now, what are some of the consequences of the exposure? Because when you talk about early childhood developmental disorders, I think people have lots of different pictures of what you mean. So can you get a little bit more specific about the consequences? Sure, yes. So the disorders we're talking about are uh, ones that people hear about sometimes. Uh, autism, autism spectrum disorder, which is a, a group of disorders involving social impairments and difficulty with communications. Uh, also, uh, ADHD, uh, otherwise known as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, and both ASD, the autism and the ADHD, have actually been rising fairly rapidly over the last couple of decades. So that, combined with this new science, I think is, is, is both of those things are part of the answer to your question of why now. Um, other developmental disorders are intellectual disability that used to be um, known as mental retardation, and I think you know, the new terminology is, is um, more respectful, uh, intellectual disability. And, and some of those are due to known genetic kinds of syndromes that have been with us for a long time. Uh, and then there are a host of other learning disabilities, um, everything from dyslexia to sensory motor integration issues. Uh, and together, these neurodevelopmental disorders seem to occur in, uh, you know, some of the statistics put it at one in six. Other people would say those might be a little bit high. Uh, but the, um, the rates definitely as a whole are going up largely from the two categories that I mentioned, 
um, ASD and ADHD and to the point where so many people feel that they, they know people who have uh, a child with autism or uh, with severe ADHD problems. I, I'm sure everyone listening, I, I do myself, certainly know of uh, parents with an autistic child. Um, so I think the prevalence, at least at its acceptance, is coming up. But the rate that you're mentioning, you're mentioning like 15, 16%. Where was it historically before? Like Because you mentioned that it's dramatically rising. Yeah. Well, um, a, a good portion of that of that, you know, that that percentage is actually the ADHD uh, statistic. And there's a bit of debate um, in that field as to whether ADHD is 5 to 7 or 8% or is it more like 10 to 12%. And uh, so a lot of that is actually the ADHD group. Um, the, uh, the others, autism is now at 1 in 68. That's the best estimate we have. Um, t- 20 years ago, uh, the rates were somewhere around uh, a few per thousand. So that's been really quite a dramatic rise uh, in autism. And I want to delve into the new science because uh, I, I think it's it's fair to say that not everyone is 100% behind um, that everything here is settled. Certainly physicians, that's not entirely true. So I want to get into this, this new science that you mentioned. Uh, let's first talk about what types of compounds we're talking about here mm-hmm. as yeah. being the environmental toxins. Right, right. Really a wide range. So everything from things that have been around forever and ever, like air pollution, uh, although changing in its composition as we change the, what kind of manufacturing happens in the U.S., um, what's, what are the additives in our you know, uh, gasoline and our uh, you know, fuel for cars and so forth, to uh, compounds that are really introduced probably fairly recently, some of the plasticizers. Uh, most people have heard of BPA, bisphenol A. Other plasticizers include phthalates. And then pesticides are... A, a class that <laughs> includes a lot of different kinds of chemicals, uh, and there's a history on that which which we can go into. Some of the compounds that are in our cosmetics and uh, you know household products and personal care products that um, uh, we are becoming aware may not be benign in terms of their impacts on on, on human health. So, how easy is the pesticide problem to to diagnose and resolve? Oh, well, pesticides, uh, you know, I see them as being the uh, really the lowest of the low-hanging fruit. And the, the reason I say that is that, you know, we've been talking about a lot of different chemicals today, but pesticides are the only ones that are actually designed to kill living organisms. And interestingly, they do so by... Uh, they interfere with the, the uh, GABA uh, and glutamate um, transmission uh, pro- system in, in, in neurons. And what actually happens in the, in the insect is the same thing that happens in the human brain or the, you know, any other mammalian brain. Um, so nature is very conservative. It uses similar kinds of things that work across all kinds of species. And that means that we are taking poisons that are designed to kill. Maybe they're not powerful enough to kill us. But uh, but they are affecting our brain in in really you know similar ways to what they're doing to the nervous system of the of the cockroach. <laughs> and in the announcement, you also cite some heavy metals like mercury and oh, lead, absolutely. which have we've known for a really long yeah. time, and there's really strong evidence. So I want to focus on some more of the organic compounds because the science mm-hmm. around them is a lot newer. They've only really come onto the scene in the last twenty years. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of studies have been done to show that there is some sort of linkage to these developmental disorders with some of these compounds, whether they're the phthalates or the, um, or the bromine compounds? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so we've talked a little bit about the phthalates. Phthalates are present in a wide range of kinds of um, things that we come into contact with, products. For one thing, they're in almost every scented product that's out there. And so that includes like your air fresheners. It includes your, you know, probably your shampoo, your soaps, uh, hand lotions, uh, all of these compounds. Um, virtually all of them will contain the phthalates. Um, one has to look 
you know, in the market for ones that are phthalate free. Uh, and the way you do that is you look for whether it's got fragrance, the word fragrance or parfum, which is the, the French word for fragrance, um, in the ingredient list. Well, that's a nicer way. That's a nicer term than phthalate. I think. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit easier to spell too. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and then they're also um, used in soft plastics. Um, they, I understand they were taken out recently of, of uh, little rubber duckies, uh, but they're in a lot of other plastics. Um, they're also in vinyl flooring. So um, many people have vinyl flooring. It's probably one of the cheapest type of floor covering. And uh, they, it actually off-gasses phthalates at a pretty high, um, high rate, a high level. And I think phthalates are used in the ICU, um, in the plastic tubing that, you know, babies who are, who are preemies uh, end up getting lots of, uh, of different kinds of, of medications through. Phthalates cover a lot of different types of phthalates. There's a myriad of different compounds. Like the ones that are used for fragrances aren't exactly chemically the same as the right. ones used to soften the various plastics. Yeah. So how were scientists able to sort of create that linkage? to some of the neurodevelopmental disorders. Yeah. Most of the research, uh, and this will be true for most of the compounds I talk about, um, in many cases, they're studied first in, in, some, in laboratory animals of some sort, usually rodents. And um, the, you know, the studies will, will show some kinds of biological changes. And for example, um, both phthalates and the uh, flame retardants, brominated flame retardants, are endocrine disrupting compounds. So that means that they can interfere with various types of, of hormones. Um, thyroid hormones were, were in fact established with the older PCBs that have now been banned, but were, you know, because they're very, very persistent in the environment, we still have a lot of them around. Um, the, and they're also the, in those brominated flame retardants, the polybrominated diphenyl ethers, um, known as PBDEs. And uh, so the thyroid disruption is is really critical in early development. In fact, you know, thyroid depends on iodine, and in populations that are iodine deficient, you would see really severe forms of intellectual disability in children, um, starting really, you know, from their because of their prenatal uh, lack of of iodine and lack of thyroid um, hormones. Now, uh, some of the other hormones that these endocrine-disrupting compounds interfere with are the, the sex steroids, which it turns out also are very critical in brain development. So phthalates uh, seem to have an anti-androgenic uh, kind of activity that um, at critical stages in brain development um, can be really harmful. In fact, the brain um, development, I mean, there's many different aspects to brain development from, you know, starting from this, this kind of primitive neural tube um, in very early um, embryonic life, that then you know those cells have to differentiate in a variety of ways. They have to migrate to the right place. They have to set up these kind of synchronous um, mini columns in the cerebral cortex by which you know the nerves you know pass impulses from you know wherever wherever the the, the impetus is coming from together. You know whether it's innervating a muscle or or a thought in the brain, and um, they actually are proliferating at an incredibly high rate during gestation. So on average, 250,000 neurons are being formed per minute over nine months. And it's way faster in the later part of the pregnancy because it's much, much, much less growth in the Hey, if you're going to get to that many neurons, you got to go at that rate, right? You got to go yeah. at that rate to get enough that, at birth. And actually the brain at birth is larger than it is. A, you actually start losing cells um, and pruning back, which is a really important part of brain development. But in any case, all of those cell divisions, every time a cell divides, that's an opportunity for, you know, problems to happen. <laughs> and and that's, that's, uh, that's, I think, why there's so much vulnerability in that early period of gestation, which is not to say that postnatally there couldn't be effects. And, of course, we know lead um, has tremendous effects on the brain, even in two, three, five, you know, eight-year-olds. So... Um, we, we don't want to say that it's all prenatal, but definitely there's a lot of susceptibility in that prenatal period. And just one other technical question here. A lot of the endocrine disruption you're talking about, in the case of bisphenol A, which you know obviously got lots of coverage and attention in 
uh, which led to the plastics industry largely eliminating them from at least some most consumer goods. It, it was that the bisphenol A like really mimicked the shape and would um, uh, bind to uh, similar receptors as as other ones. Is that the case for the phthalates as well, or is there a sort of more of a chemical? Well, the reaction? phthalates actually. Um it, there may be issues with both production and um, a- activity, uh, you know, of the androgens, um, and then there's also an issue with some of the antimicrobials, which also have antiandrogenic um, activity. And in at least one case, triclocarban, which is which is one of the antimicrobials, um, it's not the production of the androgens at all. It's definitely how active um, they they are. So dose probably matters here as much as dose anything. does. And and by the way, you were saying you're. T- I just want inter- to interject. You were talking about BPA being banned. The one of the big problems that Project Tender is trying to to get at um, is and where I think our regulatory processes are inadequate is that we go after something we 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 have learned about either through animal studies or human studies or a combination of those or or studies even in in vitro in cell culture systems but we often end up seeing that that chemical gets replaced by another chemical that's simply not as well studied but ha- carries all many of the same properties often they're they're just a slight you know shift of of one atom uh, in the molecule, so BPA now replaced with uh, BPS, and uh, so you know you change one one group to another chemically, and often the properties are very very similar. So this is kind of a game <laughs> that ends up being played with the corporations. You know, always a step ahead, and by the time you know they get you know they agree to uh, to to eliminating one chemical, um, it may be because they've got something else that they're all ready to replace it with. So this is the story of like Prilosec, how they essentially replaced that drug with the mirror image molecule of it mm-hmm. um, and just uh, kept that patent alive. But I'm, it begs the question then, what kind of testing do companies have to put some of these new additive compounds through before they're able to use it in consumer goods? Well, there there are um, there's a variety of laws. So the U.S. has kind of a patchwork system. So we have uh, you know one regulation which which is related to pesticides. It's called the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, uh, also known as FIFRA. Then we have TSCA, which of course quite recently we had this the Lautenberg um, bill that um, that actually updates TSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act. Um, that that deals with uh, you know consumer products and, and industrial products, um, and then we have the um, Clean Air Act, which deals with you know your ambient air pollution. Um, there's an, there's separate legislation for the, the the original Clean Air Act dealt with what were called the criteria pollutants like you know lead and and particles and. Um, and so there is this sulfur dioxide and things like that. Stuff. So there, so we've got this, this, this. Yeah, exactly. It's very, you know, and it's different from one one uh, regulatory, uh, uh, you know, um, legislation to another in terms of what what's required. But by and large, you know, testing tends to be done for really acute, you know, immediate sorts of effects. Um, in some cases, there's a requirement for testing for carcinogenicity. Um, and mutagenicity, um, but testing for the sort of longer-term um, effects from early life exposure is actually n- not required by for, mo- by, for by most of these regulations, and um, the, the the you know those early life exposures that sometimes teratogenicity is required to to, to clear. Um, which is where you have gross malformations uh, of the, you know, the body, you know, visible ones. But the kinds of things we're talking about are not visible. They're not something you can tell at birth the child is going to have autism or the and, child is going to have ADHD. And sometimes it takes years for yes. that to emerge, yeah. if, if not decades. Yeah, yeah. ADHD often doesn't really begin to manifest. I mean, sometimes you see it in very young children, but, you know, they're supposed to be hyperactive, <laughs> essentially. But, you know, when they get into school age is often where that gets diagnosed. And sometimes not even until, you know, adolescence or adulthood. So, so not, yeah, not definitely late. Not to play devil's advocate too much here, uh, because I'm definitely skeptical of... Um, <laughs> of uh, these companies' use of these chemicals, but 
is it reasonable for them to be able to test it when we're talking about decades long uh, emergence of some of these diseases? I, I wonder what that would look like. Well, uh, there are animal um, uh, analogs of a lot of these uh, kinds of, of behavioral issues. So, you know, rodents give you the opportunity to see things within, you know, weeks or months that might take years to see in, in a human being. That's not to say that that's the best, um, you know, best model in all cases for these kinds of outcomes. But um, but there are there are model systems based on you know uh, other species that can work. Um, there there is an effort to uh, identify you know molecular pathways that would be predictive of you know specific kinds of behavioral and and um, uh, uh, biological processes. Um, this um, effort that EPA has put together called Tox Twenty One where um, they, are, they are really building an incredible library of, of uh, a, a database that includes looking at you know, chemicals, um, trying to come up with screening tests where they can put a large number of chemicals through very rapidly and identify you know, what molecular pathways um, do they affect and in what way. Um, how that can translate into regulation, I think, is a little bit a, a, a ways off. But it's beginning to kind of tackle this problem that we do have tens of thousands of chemicals, many of which were grandfathered in when these regulations were passed, so that there is no requirement to test things that have been around for quite a, you know, a long, longer period of time. I guess we are the test in a lot of ways. We are the guinea pigs in that, in that test, I, we and our children. I want to track back to the idea of dose and exposure because uh, I... Does that matter? First of all, mm -hmm. it must matter. Well, you know, the toxicologist's you know little um, theme or whatever is the dose makes the poison from Paracelsus, whatever year that he was. And uh, with this, like dose and exposure, are kind of uh, strange to measure because there are so many factors that go into some of these neural developmental disorders. Like, let's just acknowledge that off the bat. We're not yeah, saying this yeah. is the only cause. There's other factors. There's multiple causes, and and the that's where you know this whole question of dose also. Um, but dose is is a tricky thing. So you know we had lead in gasoline for about fifty years. And in the 1920s, when that was done, that when it was added into the gasoline and it gave a little extra, you know, oomph um, for 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 the motor vehicle industry uh, or for the driver, whatever, um, the argument that it was safe was that it's such a tiny amount, it really won't make a difference. And there were many public health people who were arguing against that, even in the 1920s. Some real, you know, public health heroes. Um, as it turned out, that small amount made a huge difference over time. And as, first of all, over time, a lot more cars got out on the road. Uh, and then over time, in a lifetime, if you're breathing the air in urban cities, um, lead levels actually were, you know, at levels, what was considered low level in 1970s um, is, was, you know, the average level in the, in, of lead in the blood in Americans was somewhere around 10 to 12 micrograms per deciliter. It was about 12 for blacks in America and about 10 for whites in America. After lead was taken out of gasoline, which was not done for health purposes, <laughs> it was done because the new catalytic converters couldn't handle the, the lead. Um, and uh, within a decade, the lead levels in the population had dropped uh, to, to one-tenth the level they had been. So the average was... was 1.2 within about 10 to 12 years later. And there's some scientists that are pushing that that number should be just straight straight up zero in, well, in terms of you know, eliminating yeah, health impacts. Yeah, the idea that at we don't, we can't say there is a safe level of lead. That That's what is the consensus at so this point. So is that going to, like projecting forward, I know this is a hard question, but is that the situation that we might be in with some of these other compounds too? Is there's no such thing as a safe level? It's probable that that's that is going to be the conclusion, and um, partly it's you know it's not that easy to study the low levels. You have to have a lot of people or a lot of rats, um, and it's also the, con the true that 
chemicals interact with other chemicals, so, uh, and they interact with other factors that aren't environmental chemicals, such as your diet. Um, if you are taking you know, really good care to eat a very healthy diet, um, you may be able to handle a little bit more uh, of the lead or a little bit more of the you know, phthalates or the brominated flame retardants or what have you. Um, because it, it, these these chemicals, you know, act in complex ways, and and you know we don't fully understand the interactions, but we do sometimes see interactions that are very surprising. Does this uh, do these chemicals uh, impact people equally? I know there's a focus on pregnant women and young children here, but are we seeing differences? Like just like you mentioned with lead, we saw differences in the African American population versus. Um, the rest of the U.S. population? Are we seeing differences there as well? So um, there's differences can kind of come in, two, in different ways. You could have differences in terms of how, who's exposed more and who's exposed less. And absolutely, there's, there, are, there are differences, and we do, you know, many of these chemicals um, are seen to be in much higher levels in, in communities that are more disadvantaged, communities of color, communities of socioeconomic disadvantage. Because these compounds are in cheaper... They uh, tend to be, well, products. for instance, the phthalates are in the, the, the vinyl flooring, and um, often people who w have more means will put in hardwood floors, or, you know, I, you know, when we redid our kitchen, uh, we put in the, uh, the, the um, you know, the, the linoleum type of floor, which is made from natural resins, and, uh, you know, I did that on purpose. <laughs> So, I, and I could afford it, but certainly there are people who can't. Same thing for pesticides, which have residues in food. You know, buying organic food costs a lot more money, unfortunately. And so there is a really important environmental justice issue. Um, there are certainly, so, so that's the difference in exposures. And, and yes, they, they, they do tend to go with the, the, the socioeconomics. The other part of, of differences among people is that at different life stages, there may be greater susceptibility. So for the same amount of exposure, what happens to, you know, a fetus, a two-year-old, a 10-year-old, you know, versus a, a 40-year-old um, versus, and then you may end up having more susceptibility at the other end of the, of the, of the age, of the life stage, um, with uh, elderly people having, having greater um, susceptibilities. There are also some physiological processes. So as you get older, you start to lose bone. Well, a lot of your lead that you've absorbed during your lifetime is stored in the bone. So women and men who are losing bone may be releasing lead into their blood system. And this is actually, there are several studies that have shown this to happen, that, that you know, postmenopausal versus premenopausal women at the same age will have you know, higher, higher lead levels. So you released this sort of call to action. You're the founder of this group, Project Tender. Uh, soon after the president signed the updated uh, uh, toxic regulations in the law. Yeah, that, uh, that was accidental. We didn't, it was accidental. I, was, I was wondering if there's a link, if you felt like that didn't go far enough. Because industry spokespeople say in response to this announcement that they felt like that's going to cover things. Right. Like that's right. enough. Yeah. Yeah. So why isn't that enough in your opinion? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'm a co-founder with Maureen Swanson from the Learning Disabilities Association. I'm, I'm not the sole founder of, of Project Tender. Um, and Project Tender for listeners is, uh, it's actually an acronym that Tender is Targeting Environmental Neurodevelopment Risks. So uh, T-E-N-D-R. And um, we, we brought people together actually two years ago. We had our first, uh, we, we first started getting together in, in uh, October of 2014. We put together kind of an organizing committee and had a workshop in 2015 and started developing this consensus statement about the state of the situation, first the state of the science about environmental chemicals and their impacts on neurodevelopment, um, we had a lot of discussion, debate, should it just be neurodevelopment? Because many of these chemicals cause lots of other harm. Uh, we decided to focus um, not because the other things aren't important. Obesity is important. Um, you know, cancer, respiratory diseases, they're all important. Um, but this just ha <clears throat> happened to be where we, you know, st staked out our, our niche. 
um, from based on the people who were there. Um, and again, Learning Disabilities Association was the you know the the origins of my co-founder. Um, and we we worked on that consensus statement over a long period of time, and then it just did so happen that the president signed into into law, and the legislation finally went through. A lot of um, advocacy organizations worked very hard. I mean, for years and years, there have been decades of attempts to try to revise the Tosca um, uh, law because of its inadequacies and because it wasn't being implemented in the way that people felt it should have been. So Tosca reform um, uh, seems to have, you know, certainly strengthened many aspects of, of the law. Um, it's trying to push the process so that the rate at which chemicals are being uh, reviewed and the need to actually t take action, um, there'll be more of a time limit on that than there was. I mean, chemicals were being looked at and, you know, argued about for decades and before action was being taken. And very few chemicals were acted upon in the, what, 40, 40 years or more uh, since Tosca was, was, was initially passed. So, we, you know, we, we think it's good. We applaud that there, there, there are some things that are stronger in this, in this uh, legislation than, than we had. Um, also, in there is the importance of taking into account children and the fetus, um, vulnerable time periods, and, and using the best possible science to really tackle the most vulnerable, protecting the most, take seriously protecting the most vulnerable uh, people in, in, in our society. Um, but, uh, but there are things that, that, you know, we don't think uh, are necessarily good. The, the, the way in which it's now going to be a lot more difficult for the states to uh, enact something that's stronger than than what's happening at the federal level, so that preemption um, clause is 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 I think quite problematic. And for those of us in California, um, which often has acted when when the feds have not, uh, that 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 could be a problem. Now, if the feds haven't acted, then there will be the ability to act. Um, but once the feds do take some uh, some action, then it become, it'll become it's it's a complicated set of, of scenarios and there are waivers and so forth. But basically, um, the, 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 the need to really reform um, our, our regulatory framework is there. Um, Tosca is, is one piece. And um, as I said earlier, there are many other pieces of legislation that cover different kinds of, of uh, chemicals and sources of, of pollution. It, so. This consensus statement seemed as much directed towards insiders, physicians, other scientists, policymakers, as it was to the mm. broad general public as a warning to consumers. Is, th yeah. is that the intention? Uh, all of the above. In fact, um, at our very first workshop, we talked about who, who are we targeting? And um, I felt very strongly that just targeting the legislators uh, was not enough. And, you know, some of that comes because in my own research, I, I have been, have been asked because I do a lot of work on autism. And that's a community that has been very vocal and, and very, very concerned because of the rising rates. So I've spoken to many, many community groups and organizations, um, people outside the, the, you know, the, the usual professionals <laughs> meetings that scientists go to. And, um, it's really clear that people want answers for them themselves. And so um, saying to people, well, go work on this legislation, go call your um, representative when there are things they could do to reduce their exposures um, is, is just kind of, you know, it, it, yes, it, we, we don't want everybody to have to spend all their lives looking at the labels on everything they buy. Um, but at the same time, for those people who, who want to do that, um, they should be given the tools to be able to protect themselves. We're also interested in other strategies because sometimes it takes a long time to get legislation done. Interestingly, um, the environmental um, organizations have started to work with uh, manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. And uh, last year, uh, for example, um, Home Depot and Lowe's um, sign, you know, put forward a commitment to try to eliminate phthalates from their line of, uh, of flooring, for example. Um, that's 
that's, you know, that, that's great. And uh, it helps give consumer choices. Um, you know, so, so that's another target um, that and there can be responsible seeing, businesses you know, taking that on. Is it too early to say that we're seeing benefits from that, from that shift in uh, companies' approach to consumers? Uh, is that showing up in the data yet? You know, I don't know. I, I actually don't have the data on that. Um, that would be really interesting. I think we probably need some, you know, economists and because all kinds I, of people to look at, at that. I imagine anything that, that we do now is not going to show up in the in the scientific work for another decade or ten. Uh, oh, in terms of yeah, in terms of seeing, well, we may be able to see levels um, when you start measuring the levels of, of phthalates in the urine or or the flame retardants. Certainly. Um, flame retardant levels uh, have been going down in the population uh, since we took uh, s since the since they've been banned in in, in our uh, consumer products. Of course, the problem is that many of the consumer products with the flame retardants are the sorts of things you keep in your home for a long time, like your sofas and your mattresses and and the backing of your carpet. Um, but uh, but nevertheless, you know the, the, you do start to see levels go down. Uh, when they when they ruled in in, in around 2000 that uh, you know uh, the pesticides in homes should not contain the organophosphate uh, chlorpyrifos, um, levels of the metabolites of, of chlorpyrifos um, have have gone down since then. So that's you know that's the the first thing that you can see. Actually, seeing lower rates of uh, of autism and ADHD and intellectual disability, I think. Um, maybe harder, but we we do think that you know over over a longer period that may that may become visible. So for the average consumer out there, what are you advocating them do? Uh, actually, of like, are you actually advocating them avoiding some of these classifications of compounds and the products sure. they buy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are non toxic alternatives to getting rid of you know. Uh, the critters in your <laughs> in your home, ants and flies and cockroaches and things like that. Um, there's buying organic foods, and interestingly, um, if it's a food that you peel, um, you probably don't have to buy the organic. Just you know, peel it and and you know, wash your hands. <laughs> and uh, uh, so you know, but on the other hand, the ones that you don't peel, the strawberries, for example, are are ones where you probably do want to buy the organic if you you know if you can. Um, the products, you know, looking at labels and, you know, if you can get rid of the sofa that you bought that, that's got the flame retardants, um, you probably would do a little bit better to, to get, you know, so, and, and those are now starting to come out on the market is the, 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 with, with, without the, the, the brominated flame retardants. Um, so the consumers, the market, and then the other group that we're also targeting are the health professionals. Um, I think that the medical community has been slow to come to the table on environmental uh, causes of disease, and that's starting to change. Um, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has actually been done some really great work recently. Um, some of that's due to one of our members in Project Tender, Jeannie Connery, who was uh, a few years ago was president of, of ACOG. And uh, they issued a, a statement, and they now take seriously uh, and are urging their members to uh, proactively inform pregnant women of what some of the environmental hazards are for fetal development. And you know, they see themselves as the professionals who ought to be um, educating that particular audience, which is, a, is an important one in this case. Are you optimistic that we can overcome some of these uh, environmental toxins in terms of their health impacts? Do you th see us being able to make enough changes um, in our consumer habits and our, in business practices in order to make a difference this, as soon as this generation? Or is this going to be a longer-term fight than that? Well, it'll probably be long-term. I mean, there are very powerful stakeholders who have uh, their profits invested in, in, in these products. And we saw with the flame retardants how heavily they lobbied and lied and did all sorts of things uh, in terms of what were the dangers of fire versus um, what were the dangers from the use of the, of the, the fire retardants. Um, so, you know, they'll fight. Um, I think there's a lot of consumer demand, though. The fact that 
that the manufacturers feel the need to change their products, uh, they're, they're being put under pressure because people don't want to buy the products that, are, that, are, that contain these compounds. So I, I think as consumer awareness grows, um, then you know, it really become, it, it'll become economically in their interest <laughs> to make those changes. Um, and uh, that has often been the case, that getting rid of, of uh, harmful chemicals has turned out ending up being more economical for the, for, for, for the, uh, the, 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 the corporate interests that, uh, that produce those, those chemicals. It's not to say that some of these problems aren't, might not be expensive to, um, to, to fix, but, uh, you know, it's hard to say how long, how long will it take it really, you know, what other things get people, you know, excited and certainly, um, some of the issues that seem, uh, even more devastating, like climate change, um, you know, has to also uh, take a pretty important part, part of the environmental concerns of, of people today. Well, thank you so much for sharing this story with us today on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. All right. So I'll say off the top, there's things she said that I had trouble with, in, in her, especially in her recommendations. But Let's put a different twist on this. Both of us have young children. And uh, when it comes to being cautious about items we keep in our household that end up in these kids' mouths, you you can believe that we tend to be, you know, fairly conservative in a lot of ways. Do you think that this idea of that we need to be very cautious around certain classifications of chemicals makes sense to you as just a parent. Forget the science for a second. Sure. I mean, as look, as a parent, it's super scary. And, you know, uh, it's not like we've had a completely problem-free journey from, you know, birth to where my son is now. And it's, it, you know, certainly I look back at times and think, oh, is there something that I did that, you know, caused this particular problem? You know, he's fine. Everything's fine. But, you know, it, it's, it's, of course, you feel that way. And I certainly wouldn't want to, you know, if he did, uh, you know, develop a neurodevelopmental uh, disease, and then I found out that there was some correlation with the chemicals in my house, I would be devastated. But, I, you know, the thing that frustrates me is that so many of these recommendations are based on studies of, you know, a lot of these chemicals in, you know, ex where exposed to other mammals. And I'm not saying that we as humans are so different from mice and rodents that that work isn't relevant. But the problem is, is, is it's how much exposure is there, they're really getting. I mean, so many things in excess, of course, are poisonous, but um, at current levels, they might not be. And I, and I think and, and there are some cases where there does seem to be documentation that uh, the current levels are, are too high. Um, but I, I still struggle with that, you know. Let's play with the precautionary principle for a second, which is a common thing that we hear tossed out about. Like, if we don't fully know the impact of, of X, we shouldn't do Y. So she brought up the idea of, of BPA, bisphenol A, which was an additive in a lot of plastics. A lot of science came out, showed that it had endocrine disrupting side effects. So it was banned. And then the plastics industry reformulated uh, certain plasticizers in there and now use something called Triton. Now, science lags. Mm -hmm. So we don't have good understanding of what Triton's impact in humans are. And we're just getting to the point where we're seeing it in... Um, mouse models, what it what its impact is. So naturally, there's a question mark about Triton. But because of how regulations work in this country, Triton's on the shelves. So how do we feel about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I you know, I, I limit the number of plastics that my son eats out of, right? You know, I try to buy stainless steel or uh, glass. But I also don't know whether that glass or stainless steel has been finished with some kind of chemical that makes it just as toxic. You know, I feel like there's so many different ways in which this can, you know, we, we can we can lay this out. And uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. Do I just like stop feeding him? Yeah, so th <laughs> this set off my alarm bells in a couple different directions. So like the skeptic in me was, was kind of had like a, come on, like, we can't be perfect here in a lot of uh, different realms. And we should be skeptical of certain use cases. But we also need a lot of evidence to uh, showcase the impact. Now, where I turned my science hat on and, and basically was like, there's something here, is there is definitely evidence, compelling evidence that she talked about around families of, of chemicals. And while that 
maybe discriminatory versus like one particular chemical in that family. There's reason to be uh, like very cautious around those. So what she was talking about with some of the pesticide work, no question about lead and mercury um, and some of the air pollution, which we know well, especially if you're pregnant, has a pretty big impact on you and has a more significant impact on those who are tend to be less well off because their inability to uh, travel away from that air pollution. I think there's reasons to be optimistic about it. And the idea that there is a group out there that has an alliance of scientists and physicians, well, that's better than what we have now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I hope that they can make, uh, you know, make me feel as if all the products that are available on the shelves are now safe. I mean, that's that's an ideal that I hope we aspire to. Um, I, I just don't like the fear mongering. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Let's go drinks out of a Titan or a Triton bottle. <laughs> yeah, formula or milk. <laughs> that's a whole other show. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. Definitely not formula. I just need to be <laughs> very forthright about that. Not formula. <laughs> And this week's episode is brought to you by Audible, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and so much more. You'll find what you're looking for at audible.com. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by signing up at audible.com slash minds. That's audible.com slash minds. Crazy Good Turns is a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. This week, hear from The Trevor Project, a suicide hotline dedicated to empowering gay and questioning youth in their toughest moments. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or Stitcher. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your favorite types of pots and pans or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Milk Advocate Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. <laughs>